Hi, this is Ellie and this is Greatest Beats, the podcast where we talk to your favourite artists from the harder styles and rave scenes about their songs that they believe to be the most memorable from their careers so far. Since this podcast started way back at episode one, we have heard some amazing stories from your favourite artists about their music. Now that we've reached episode 10, we're going to have a look back on the previous episodes and share some of our favourite moments for you to listen to. In episode one, we spoke to Adaro, who is a producer and DJ who really needs no introduction. A pioneer of the raw hardstyle sound who can be found playing at events across the globe. He's also 50% of the Dutch hardstyle act Guns for Hire, who continue to destroy dance floors with their incredible masked act. It was so much fun talking to Tice about his career and the songs which have made him. I have known Tice for a long time, having worked with him on the song Sorrow with Guns for Hire. He is such an interesting guy to listen to and shared some of his memories of that song in particular. We made tracks together as Randy and Adaro, for example, Under Attack or Struggle for Existence, and uh, they became pretty big. We we had a good click in the studio and also outside of the studio. And we were like, um, you know, we want to continue this uh, collaboration. Why not Mm -hmm. uh, do something special with a live act? And okay okay but uh you know what kind of live act so we had some uh brainstorm session how do you call that brainstorm right yeah uh, yeah some, some <laughs> yeah. brainstorm sessions and uh, brainstorming at, at that time we were at the scantrax label from the prophet and the prophet was also yeah. in the in the discussion and our manager at that time rudy and uh yeah we just it it came from step to step okay we like uh criminal movies about crime uh, movies. Uh, I like more the classic movies, like uh, Godfather, Goodfellas and everything. And Randy liked more the futuristic uh, movies like Hitman. So mm-hmm. has to be in between. Why don't we do a classical suit with a futuristic mask, you know? And we've, we're, we yeah. were also thinking, like, should we do uh, makeup? And then uh, the prophet said, like, uh, no, you shouldn't do makeup because he had experience with a live act in the past with makeup. It's... Yeah, with sweat and everything, and every every yeah. gig you have to have uh, hire uh, somebody for the schmink, for the makeup, you know. So oh, that's yeah, yeah. logistically also, uh, yeah, makes it uh, complicated. So yeah, we have to mm-hmm. mask. Okay, what kind of mask? And this and then that. And then we saw uh, somewhere online this mask, and then with the suits. Oh, this is it. Okay, what's uh, what's gonna be called? Uh, oh, you're a hitman. What's another word? Uh, hitman uh, is not a cool word, you know. So, uh, what's original? Oh, guns for hire. Guns for hire. Oh, guns for hire.com already gone. Uh, let's do a Z. So, okay, the u- URL is free. The social media is free. <laughs> so, okay, that's it. And of course, his fans are the most important thing to him. And it was great to hear his stories and memories of those interactions he has with his fans. You have such a great relationship with your fans in the sense that 
you you talk to them and when you look online and you see what people have to say oh yeah he's so he's so nice he's really friendly and that's part of your persona i think as well that yeah it just it just fits my uh yeah my person and also uh i remember you know i broke through on a on a later age you know so i think uh when I was young and I was fan of a DJ, uh, DJs that did nice back, uh, uh-huh. I I thought, hey, that's cool, you know. So I always thought, when I'm gonna break through some some time, I will also treat everybody normal and talk to everybody. And I'm really happy to have fans. I really think every time it's not normal, you know. Don't think it's normal. It's it's special. And uh, if someone takes the um, time to write a message. And uh, the message is not insulting or anything. You know, you get an answer back. In episode two, we were joined by an Australian producer and DJ who began his career in the first decade of the century, releasing hardstyle tracks on labels such as Dutch Masterworks. A rebranding in 2013 saw him take on a roar sound and heralded a new chapter in his story. For episode two, we welcomed Outbreak. Of course, when I think of Outbreak, I think of Bass Face. And of course, John Paul chose that as one of his tracks. Here's what he had to say about his memories from that particular track. It was unbelievable. And uh, yeah, I still can't imagine that that all happened. I mean, from a lyric that I created on my iPhone sitting on the couch, uh, the track itself was probably finished uh, or made in four hours. Wow. Um, what was it that inspired that lyric, like sitting on the couch just thinking, <laughs> I was on Twitter. show me your basis? <laughs> <laughs> I, was on, I, was, I was on Twitter and I saw all these things about base face coming past and I was like, base face, just looking it up. I'm like, what's base face, base face? Oh my God, this could be something. And um, <laughs> like, what could I say? I was like, stop, stop, stop what you're doing and show me your basis. And I think when I first recorded it, it sort of came out a little bit more Mexicans, like, stop what you're doing and show me your bass space. And then uh, <laughs> with a lot of dist- with a lot of uh, distortion and other effects, it gets the stop what you're doing and show me your bass face. And that's uh, <laughs> sort of how it was uh, realized. Yeah. Of course, throughout the years, many artists changed their aliases. Outbreak is one of them. Here's what he had to say about the trials and tribulations that came with becoming Outbreak. In 2013, which is when I knew today came out, you moved from being nitrous to originally Crossfire. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I forgot about this, (laughs) but my friend, we saw you at DEF CON 2013, was it? Yeah, that was the the release party. Yeah. Yeah. And you were on the lineup as Crossfire. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of buzz on social media. Who's Crossfire? Who's this guy? Who's this guy? Oh, is it somebody new? Um, yeah. 
and then you became outbreak. Was there a reason for that? Was there a reason that was, it was probably something really simple, but was there a yeah, reason? Yeah, someone else had the name. Yeah. <laughs> I, did it. I didn't do my research well enough. But, uh... Yeah, I think I thought it was maybe something like that because, yeah, outbreak came out and it was this new direction for you. Yeah, it was really crazy. Like, uh, I think. I was sort of dwindling with Nitrous a bit. I was a bit lost with what I wanted to do. And I think I was on the edge of moving back to Australia. And um, yeah, it was, uh, I, you know, not that I didn't have a bad career, but I just sort of didn't know which way to go. Um, and uh, it was after long discussions, driving the bookings with like uh, Corey Code Black and uh, Ellie mm-hmm. Tone Shifters that um, were like, hey, let's, you know, what, what if we did like a more raw edge party, uh, party, a more raw edge act together. And, um, and and we're like, yeah, what, what could we do? So uh, we started thinking, and then the, uh, I, or, I had I, it was it was really funny because I had already designed and um, I was prepared to relaunch Nitras yeah. in a totally new fashion, and 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 the harder edge stuff even harder than it was because my Nitras is a little bit more commercial music, and, and mm-hmm. I wanted to I wanted to sort of be in between and do more of the commercial stuff but also harder so just give it a bit of a different influence and um and then yeah i was uh we were driving like yeah why don't we do this um and i sat for for maybe a few weeks and wrote down like hundreds hundreds of names and um uh in discussions with the guys and of course uh, brendan hart from we are when just before we started that um we were like yeah let's go with crossfire crossfire is great we looked it up online couldn't find anything we're like oh the only thing it's like a chrysler car but that's that's cool we can deal with that and uh, Mm -hmm. so we um yeah fabian took it all to organizations it was like yeah we've got this new brand we're going to start something it's really great we're going to call it crossfire and and no one no one didn't trigger or anything it didn't say anything And I think it was uh, a week before DEFCON and uh, they've come up and said, yeah, there's a hardcore artist with the same name. And I was like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, all the artwork was redone to the, to, to, to the Crossfire stuff and uh, the logo was developed. So, you know, everything was ready to go. And um, yeah, I had one weekend to fix it all. In episode three, we welcomed a versatile producer who made a name for themselves in the mid-2000s, rising to prominence in the UK hardcore scene. Since then, their popularity has continued to grow, with releases across various labels and styles and with appearances at events worldwide. A fellow Scot, it was great to talk to, Joey Riot. Joey had so much to say that was so interesting because he had so many tales of what it was like growing up as a youngster in Glasgow, getting into the rave scene and then becoming an artist in his own right. It was so interesting to hear how it was for him as a young man in Glasgow. I mean, I wasn't called Riot for nothing, you know. It was, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I was a wee terror, and I guess we, we were all... It was, you know, the west of Scotland is a, a, a tough place to grow up and, um, you know gang violence and just you know like you, you don't walk into other areas and stuff like that without you know the threat of something you know nasty happening that's kind of how I grew up and I was I was a wee shy wolfer but you had to have this air of toughness to just survive because if you if you looked weak then you would get picked on so you know I had 
I had a, a wee attitude on me and the, the music, it, it's such a cliche, but it really saved my life, you know, just from the release that you get from, uh, you know, dancing to it and, you know, and trying to make it and, you know, writing raps and just this community thing that builds up with your friends, having something to do that's constructive rather than, you know, go smash Wendy's or get a chase or something like that or get in a fight, you know, that, that whole side <laughs> of it was great. But when I started going to parties as well, like the very first rave I went to and I think it was 94 in the Barrowlands and um, I bumped into someone and I, I've, you know, I got, I was really worried because I'd been to some dance, you know, the dancing in the town where it was like under 18s <laughs> and stuff and everybody was trying to plug each other, you know, it was mental. Um, you know, just different areas of the town or like in this corner of the club, all just, you know, throwing stuff at each other. It was really, you know, intimidating atmosphere, especially for a, you know, young teenage boy. And I was tiny as a kid as well, you know, I was an absolute midget. So I was, you know, I was <laughs> scared, but I'd always like, you know, give it my all to get in amongst it. But um, then like I bumped into this guy and I was like, you know, freeze frame ready to, you know, go fisticuffs and he put his arm around me and he bought me a drink and he was just like, ah. and I was telling him like, you know what I'm telling you now, like how I felt about, and he's like, it's not like that, it raves me, man. And, you know, and um, we talked together. I can't remember his name, but we spoke together for years. He gave me some glow sticks and stuff like that. And I was just like, man, this is home. This is like, this is what I've been looking for. Like, I didn't know anything like that existed, you know, just because of how I grew up. Something that was really interesting to hear from Joey was his experience of mental health within the industry and how hard it can be for DJs and producers being on the go non-stop. That's been over the halfway point and the tracks have already started writing for that album. There's like, there's no... A blueprint to like sitting down to them and it's like I say it's really liberating and it's the first time in years that I've really really enjoyed it's the last few years of DT I didn't I didn't enjoy any of it like even when I was earning the most money I'd ever made in my career I was like I was miserable in the, during the week it's mad to think that because people think oh you know you've got this you've got that but you know I was really I've, I've been so over consumed by trying to be successful in my career that I've forgot to connect with the people around about me the people that actually really care about me you know which is yeah. much to my detriment because I was trying to fill a big hole in my life with success you know all the stuff that had happened in my, my younger years that had left my head a bit you know turn upside down I'm like mm. as long as I get if I get successful and everybody likes me I'll be happy um uh, you know and I'd be stood yeah. in front of 40,000 people and then go home and have a cry into my cereal you know so in episode four we were pleased to welcome an artist known for his work in the UK hardcore scene internationally respected and a founder of the acclaimed hardcore underground brand he continues to work hard creating fresh and creative hardcore sounds for his ever-growing fan base. Episode four was all about Brackus. I've known Fracas for a long time and watched his career grow and grow. So it was interesting to hear about how he started and where it all began for him. It was when we started producing, we first bought some equipment, me and some of my friends, um, when I was about 17, I think, and we were starting to dabble in production and we were trying to get to the equipment in my friend's house. His dad was in a band and he had a sort of studio set up kind of thing in his shed. So we kind of started turning that into our little production room yeah. and, um, yeah, we kind of we we started doing stuff, but it wasn't um, it wasn't anywhere near where we needed to be. So we started going in with engineers and paying for studio time, like people pay uh, me for studio time now. And I went in with uh, Dave Devastate originally, 
Um, did a few tracks with Force, Paul Hubbs from Force and Stars, which was really, really wow. um, inspirational for us. And then Jason UFO as well did some of our early bits yeah. and pieces. So we'd kind of come up with little riffs on the keyboard and lyrics and little ideas about what we wanted to do. And then with the various people I worked with at that time, mainly um, my friend Gavin, Gav G, we'd go down and we'd sort of spend the day and kind of get them to interpret our ideas. Yeah, it was really good. It was good fun. But um, at the same time, I always kind of wanted to be able to do it myself, you know, so it was a case of like trying to learn stuff while we were there and watch what people were doing and pick up some um, bits and pieces you know, as to how to kind of because I was doing music tech at uni at the time, but that was all very kind of broad music theory based. So mm -hmm. there wasn't anything kind of hard dance specific in there. And whilst you can sit and read books and be taught all this stuff about the principles, like you don't learn how to get that particular sound on a hard dance record. Of course, Fracas is part of the Hardcore Underground brand. And it was interesting to hear about how that came about and how he hopes to see it continue to grow in the future. First, I think like, the first time we idea. ever discussed it was at Viberlight in Leeds, possibly that same year, 2006. Yeah. There was like a new talent room. Basically, everybody who was on the compilation first time around, I think, had played in that room. There was a compilation called Hardcore Euphoria, which was happening and a lot of the people that ended up on Hardcore Underground had submitted a lot of those tracks to Hardcore Euphoria and they were things that didn't make it onto that album and it was kind of like there's a lot of music here that's just not getting heard beyond you know people's kind of this is I think this is even pre-MySpace so I don't even know how people were hearing it mm. I suppose on demo CDs and stuff but yeah that was when we kind of thought about the idea and talking to everybody um, that had played there and you know that was making music and stuff about putting something together and it's yeah, it kind of snowballed. I mean, um, you know, that side of things has inevitably sort of tailed off like albums and physical stuff. You know, the kids really just aren't interested in physical stuff so much anymore. We still do like the odd limited thing. But at that point, there was still quite a market in it. And the major labels were still throwing money at things like the Hell Skeleton Ministry of Sound CDs and Hardcore Nation and stuff like that. So we knew there was a demand for something else, albeit a much, much smaller kind of version of what those guys were doing so yeah it was just born out of that really just out of a desire to kind of see if we could get that music heard by more people you know yeah and it totally worked and it's became this big brand from the original beginnings as a compilation cd you now have the label and it's you've got a worldwide brand i think it's fair to say that you you should be really proud of what hardcore underground has become and how much of an inspiration it is to people all over the world so <laughs> that's very kind that yeah time. i mean it's um it's not <laughs> despite the fact that it's sort of been going for all this time it's not a great big thing at all it's still run by just a handful of us and it's um you know it's definitely slowed down over the last few years with the pandemic and stuff and we've kind of got other projects and stuff that we do as well now so it's definitely not where it was a few years ago um in terms of having our attention and and stuff like that but we we do try and it's still you know the last time we did a hardcore hardcore underground album proper which was uh, the back end of 2020 we still managed to do what we'd always wanted to do which was you know give it to people who were breaking through um daniel seven aos people yeah. like that um shane cyan from toronto and stuff and give them free reign to pick tracks from sort of newer producers and sort of underrated producers and they did that and they did a really good job so yeah i mean never say never yeah. hopefully you know there may be more there may not we don't know really at this point but um yeah, we've, we've tried to stick to our principles with it anyway, which is kind of put the music first, you know. In episode five, we welcomed an artist whose voice is perhaps the most recognisable in Hardstyle. 
Performing at parties worldwide, he is the man behind many of your festival season memories. We welcomed MC Villain. It was great to chat to Villain. He gave us a different take on what it's like to be within the Harshdale scene and to work as a vocalist. Do you remember your first live MC gig, for example? Do you remember anything like that? Well, to tell you how, because I started off as a as a DJ. Yeah, I, I was. I had a residency in Club Starlight. It was a club uh, near my hometown, and I had the ability to uh, or the opportunity to play once a month there in a small club and to play hard dance music. It, it, it didn't have the name yet, so it wasn't like hard style yet. Yeah. Uh, it was more like hard trance. You know, the, the mm-hmm. K-Tress, it, uh, uh, Warm Doucher, Techno Boy, of course, uh, yeah. that kind of sound. And what I always did is, because this is what was typical at the Q-Dance parties in those days, like Ruffian, there was always an MC. Yeah. And I had the opportunity to play music in, in a little club. I always grabbed the mic. You know, I, it wasn't wasn't special. It was just, yo, guys, put your hands up. <laughs> but it wasn't common in clubs. Maybe, you know, it's, it's different, uh, of course, in, in, in Scotland and yeah. in the UK in those times. But not, not not in our clubs, you know. So the owner of the, of the place, he liked that, you know. People were hyped up because of that. There was a time that uh, he asked me, like, hey, I'm interested in booking uh, Lady Dana oh, yeah. uh, for the the main hall of the club. Uh, sh- shall I do it? At first, he was always skeptic about it, you know, because the hardcore shit and stuff. Because the hardcore well, had a very bad name yeah. in clubs, of course, you know, because it tra- it attracts gabbers, uh, yeah. you know, people in uh, in in in, in, um, in in sports clothing and and shaved yeah. bald heads. But I always told him, no, man, that, that time is gone. It, it's, it's not there anymore. So it's a different crowd now. And when he saw me play, he really saw that it was really hyped by the young kids. So he thought, like, after a little while, okay, let's book a bigger DJ. And then he started uh, booking, like, yeah, Lady Donna, Pavo, Techno Boy, Luna. And what I always did is, like, I always announced them because it was so common at the, at the Q-Dance parties as well. And this is where the whole MCing thing started rolling a little bit because it started as a kind of like a joke, you know, because like, yeah. hey, Starlight, what's up? <laughs> Next DJ in line, are you ready? Uh, are you ready for <laughs> Lady Donna? Uh, and everybody like, yeah, you know, and, and, and the owner, he loved it. He said, bro, you need to do that every week for me, for every DJ, for, for you know, <laughs> even not only hardstyle, but oh, as well, club, housey, techy, you know. So I did like, uh, you know, for for DJ Jean and, and and you know, guys like that. I just announced them, and that's it. I just announced them, and that's it. And I I get some money for that. And this is how the whole thing started rolling. And I thought like, hey, you know, I can do more with that. It was so interesting to hear how he began in clubs in the Netherlands and how he got his shot. Maybe it inspired you to go and give it a go. 
It was also great to chat to him about his experiences of being respected within the scene and standing up for what you deserve and what you're owed. You are actually incredibly talented with what you do and and how you add to the songs. I think sometimes there's a stigma around vocalists and MCs and stuff that a lot of times people don't think that we do a lot or that we don't add mm-hmm. to the tracks. And I think that's yeah. very untrue of you. I think you're very, you do, I mean, I've worked with you before and I know how much effort you put into the tracks and how much time you take to create them with the producers as well. And I think yeah. this is a really good example of that, this track. Yeah, would you say that's yeah, true? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, but, but it is true, you know. So, uh, yeah, sometimes as a host or a vocalist, yeah, you, you don't always get the, the, the credits. Yeah, the people always say a little bit like, oh, you, you, you're that vocalist, uh, or you, you only did the vocal, you know, like, hey. Yeah, you know, sometimes it could be like that, you know, uh, with some people, but I always try, and that's what my colleagues always uh, know about me, is that I'm really involved in, in the whole process, and uh from start to finish, you know, it's not like, okay, you're here, you have my vocal. I will hear it when, uh, when the track is done. No, 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 no. Mm. It's, it's never been like that with me. So in the beginning phase, I always needed to fight for my place, you know, and yeah. to, you know, to, uh, to show like, Hey, listen, you know, I have rights as well. I have something to say because in the beginning, not only the best one, but the best one is always good, you know, but when I started doing, with other guys, like maybe like the prophet, you know, I, I became part of his label. And then in the beginning phase, it was always for me, it was just a hobby. But after a while, people started saying, Hey man, you need to, um, uh, to, you know, to sign your contracts better because I see that, uh, you only earn nothing on, on those tracks. And I was like, Oh, do I need to sign a contract? Nobody ever gave me a contract. And then I came about that for years and years, they never sent me any contracts. They just fill in like, oh, this is for villain, 10%. (laughs) And after so many years, after five years, I came, you know, I I, I discovered that. And I was like, what the fuck, guys? Did you fucking rip me off? (laughs) You know? In episode 6, we said hello to a producer and DJ known for his work across the UK hardcore scene. He's one half of an award-winning duo, while also being respected in his own right, and has releases across various labels, whilst also being an integral part of the team who brought us Hardcore Underground. In episode 6, we spoke to Darwin. Nick had loads to say about how he started off in music and how he sees himself as a producer and less of a DJ. I mean, I, I just wanted to be a producer. So, you know, the, don't get me wrong, I love the DJing side, but the producing side was always where I wanted to be. Like, as, you know, from a young teenager, like, it's what I wanted to do. So, 
I think the pandemic just made that more visible. Oh, this hasn't really changed what I'm doing. I'm just doing more of it. And I actually enjoying that because I'm doing more of it. And I think that's it just allowed me to kind of switch the focus more onto making music. Then before we were kind of gigging and then that would take up your weekend. And then you'd, by the time you sort of reset, it was like, oh, I'll go back to studio. But then it's like, oh, we've got more gigs to worry about as well. Yeah. You now we've got that one to think about, this one to think about. You know, and then, you know, you're sort of split. Um, it wasn't a bad split, but obviously, you know, when you're focused on one thing, you can do it really well. Yeah. It was also interesting to hear Nick talk about his family life and how it interacts with his work and how hard it can be having a family while also trying to make a musical career. When I look back at it as well, you know, I mean, I don't really talk about it much, but obviously, like, you know, I, I had children relatively young. But uh, I mean, but it was at a time when I was trying to do it at the same time, like trying to have a music career. And it, it's quite hard when when you've got a young family to kind of go through that. And, you know, later down the line, you know, when me and my wife found out um, our, our twin girls had autism, it was a lot to take in and it was like oh you know I've got to try and balance this music career at the same time as you know looking after you know um twins with autism yeah it is really hard trying to explain to people why you want to have this music career when you have a child to raise especially when your child has complex needs and yeah it's it's very very hard it, um, that's the thing it's the balance as well so I had to make a decision that it wasn't it, it was probably a few months before that um, um don't be lonely and all that uh, don't lonely came out on first heard on hardcore underground one and yeah. that was I think an October time of that year and but it was about eight months before that I had to really decide you know the kids were just been born or they're a few months old and we I had to make a decision am I going to do this as a full-time job or am I going to get a job? And I, I said, I, I'm, I love music. I love hardcore music. I love dance music. I have to do this. If I don't do this, then I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I just, you know, I dropped myself in the deep end. And, I, you know, luckily I've been doing this as a full-time job since then, really, up until now, you know, I'm still doing it now. It's, it's been a thing. You know, including Gaz, you know, me and Gaz are lucky enough that we've managed to turn what we love doing into a, a job. But it doesn't feel like that, obviously. <laughs> yeah. In episode seven, we spoke to a legend of the Harder Styles about his career, which has spanned over 30 years. He is cited as one of the pioneers of the happy hardcore sound. And this Dutch producer is one of the most recognisable artists in the scene. I was so pleased to welcome Charlie Low Noise. He's told us so many stories about his career and how it started way back in the day before the digital world we know now. We, we used to have tapes, you know. So now we make music in computers. But at that time there were no computers. And I made my music with two records, two tape recorders. Uh, with a mixer and just wow. recording on one uh, tape recorder and recording a loop on another tape recorder. So there was a loop uh, driving yeah. all the time, looping all the time from one record. So with three faders, 
two turntables and one tape recorder, I mixed, uh, recorded on the other uh, tape recorder. So that's how I created my first own sampler, you know? Wow, that's that's amazing, guys. <laughs> that's amazing to hear how you did that before technology and before, you know, yeah. everything that we have now. That's incredible. I, I, wow. And you grew to love it. Yeah, that, that's only the beginning. And then uh, at a certain time, I had to go into the army because in Holland, not now anymore, but at that time you had to go two years into the army. Oh, wow. So I went uh, I totally were uh, taken off of the music because I went there sometimes for two weeks, one week, three weeks. And at a certain time I was thinking when I went uh, by train to the, to the base, yeah, maybe I have to do something with my life. And I studied a little bit like electronic electronics. So then at that moment I saw a uh, commercial in television that said step into the world, which is called uh, the Marines. So I thought, wow, this is great adventure and like this. So I went to the Marines and I could stay there all my life. I'm now 54. In one year, I could re retire. It was very different. I yeah, stayed there for two years, but I felt really in my heart that this was not my, yeah, my future. I didn't like doing with weapons and everything. And I think war is something we don't need. So yeah, I was absolutely. really with music in my heart. So I, uh, I quit there and then I came back into uh, society and I earned good money, like in pounds, maybe like uh, 5,000 pounds or something like that. Wow. And I bought my own home studio and I was living with my parents at that moment still. So it was like I was 21 and um, I created music with an Atari and just every day, every evening after my work, I went into the studio and just every day creating music, but there was no internet. So I had to develop it all myself. Yeah. And that's at a certain moment, RJ's rule uh, was created. His track Wonderful Days with Mental Theo is an absolutely legendary song. There are very few people who can say they don't know it. So it was interesting to hear where it all began for that track. So after, um, yeah, after a few months, Theo and me went into the studio and at a certain point, uh, that, that was really great because we were just sitting around a little bit in the studio and nothing came out really. Theo went home, he went to his place of birth, which is in the south part of Holland. And they, they drink a lot there. So Theo went <laughs> to, to a bar at night and he came yeah. at home and he was like, oh, very sick. So he couldn't <laughs> sleep really. And he went to a studio and he put on a record, but th the record had to be played at 33 rounds per minute, you know? But yeah. how do you call it? Um, he didn't see that he was putting it on 45 rounds per minute. So it was too fast. <laughs> so this record was from Tony Ronald and normally it had to sound like, a pound love, dude, at last. But when he put it on, it was like, a pound love. <laughs> so then he thought, wow, this is this, this sounds great. So in the middle of the night, he, he called me and he said, Ramon, listen to this. Hear what I have. So he played me the record. <laughs> this is a big hit, man. This is a big hit. Come to me and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna work on it. So say that was four o'clock. 
And at 11, he was in The Hague again, and we were working on this track. And within one day, we had the radio version ready. Within uh, the next week, we had the hardcore version, the Rotterdam mix. So we uh, released it on Master Maximum Records, and it was a bomb, you know, like really selling. I think I sold, I think in, in vinyls, uh, 27,000 copies of uh, Wonderful Days. It was also interesting to hear how success wasn't always so great for Ramon and how he has now found peace after difficult times. I really enjoyed talking to Charlie Lonois. His stories were so epic. And this is an episode I think I'll listen to over and over again. In episode eight, we welcomed a UK hardcore producer whose career began at the tender age of 15. Rising up the hardcore ranks, he is now one of the most popular producers in the scene with collaborations with Gammer, Joey Riot and Darren Styles on his CV. Greatest Beats welcomed Alex Prospect. still very young but he has done so much one of his earliest collaborations was with Dan Styles. yeah sure okay so so with, with this track I'd be I'd already been producing hardcore for quite a few years maybe like three years or something four years and then um with that track I'd, I'd recently moved down to Southampton just from where I grew up in that London area yeah. and I was sending tracks to a record label called Thin and Crispy which was run by a, a DJ called Robbie Long Stormtrooper at the time so this is going quite like way back yeah. then so I'd, I've been trying to get just my track signed uh there and I'd sent some stuff to Robbie Long he got me in contact with a guy called D-Light who uh did a bunch of tracks called like he did a really good track called Gypsy Disco that was like quite uh, a big tune like back in 2005 or so this is like a long time ago so i was doing tracks with him and then he had a vocalist called becky that um he'd been he'd been working with and the funny story with that is she she like consecutively cancelled the studio date about like for about three weeks in a row just like every single day and nothing's really changed because i'm still working with her to this day and um yeah she's been cancelling a lot of studios so but it is great whenever <laughs> you do knock in the studio with her it is it's always a good time so we've done one song together before that was a bit more like a quash sort of like sign unknown sort of like quite happy happy kind of track and then with this track driving me crazy i'd um just got some of the pluck sounds and just i don't know just like late like last like in a night time just kind of like playing some melodies and chords and just got a bit of a vibe going so and i, I played her a bunch of different uh like instrumentals that i've been working with and then that was one she was like, oh alex that sounds really stylesy like i can imagine that sort of sounds like a styles kind of thing so i was like okay cool you know let's see what you've got for it so she put a few vocals down and at first she had a really good verse but then we're running out of studio time because it was one of those ones where we're like not getting that many ideas or like having plenty of ideas but nothing that was really it and then just as she's got to go oh we, we, we like nailed it and it's and we've got something that's, that's working so anyway but then it worked out quite well because with the chorus um she hadn't quite finished that so where it wasn't done um i've been using a plugin called melodyne recently for like getting a bit more 
like experimental with some of the harmonies with um with the vocals so for the for the chorus on this you've got the because you're all uh, da, 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 driving yeah. me crazy uh, 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 you're taking me higher da, da, da. so that was all done just like the actual vocals just because your love is driving me crazy just like that and then all the layers kind of so it was just kind of a fun track where we we're just experimenting with it and um messing around with different sounds and then i, I think what got styles interested in it was because um we'd kind of gone for like the slightly more dubstepy sounds but i think it was more actually in the vocal and and the breakdown really i think it was um something something different and i think you know after um with, with this track uh becky was really the one that got it sent to styles because i think she knew him from like i think like back in the day because she's a, like a bit older than me so she had kind of done a few vocals in the scene before like she did one track uh with hixie that was like quite a quite a popular track so um she kind of knew them a little bit so she sent like an email to styles and then we didn't really hear anything back for like, like three weeks or something so we just thought you know, just keep making music. But then, but then, then he got back to us about it. He was just like, yeah, like, this is great. I'd really like to, to work on it. I was, so I was like, I, I, for me, I thought this was cool, but I think like Becky, she was like the biggest like Styles fan. So, so that, that was really cool. And it was definitely like an interesting, interesting, you know, thing to go and do. But it, it was kind of like, it was just like one of the many things. Cause I was just kind of focusing on other things and still sending stuff to different labels and, um, you know, d starting to like chat to Joey and people as well. So it's just kind of like another one of those things that, um, you know, like help, help. Alex uh, embraced the international scene very early on in his career as well and has worked in LA and more recently in Korea where he is starting to make inroads in that scene. It was fabulous to hear him talk about his friendship with his friend Sefo. You, when you first got to know each other, you couldn't even like talk without a translator no it was just it was just just google actually i uh, just uh like google translate or just like emojis really i mean obviously <laughs> like, you know when i saw him doing that you know the, the festival like performing in front you know in the park i was just like just you know, some smiley faces and thumbs up and just like wow or something like this you know, it's, well, very, it's very simple you know like that's such a modern like thing you i mean if you had said this to, like 20 30 years ago everyone would be like what do you know what i mean like but to say now that you have a conversation with someone and that doesn't even speak the same language as you but you understand completely because you're just sending emojis back and forward it's like a whole new language yeah. but that's amazing that yeah, you yeah. have created that and it came out in this song and it's a beautiful beautiful song and oh thank you yeah yeah and i think it's also where you're you're hoping to take your career forward because you've sang to his label yeah. haven't you yeah so, so so this is the thing i mean after it kind of happened very quickly he, he did talk about you know doing some agent work for me just for the asia area so i was like well you know brilliant that just have somebody that could could sort of sort out some gigs over there or, or at least just do be the middleman for, for sorting some things out but basically he, he's then decided to set up this grunt zero company um that's just going from strength to strength to strength to strength, mm -hmm. to strength. and it's just you know that the things they've got planned over there is just is, is enormous and it's great to be like a part of it and you know be producing a, you know a lot of the songs for them so and that was just um yeah just kind of from progression from just seeing his thing on instagram and then just getting on well and yeah. you know playing tracks but there was never any guessing oh um you know i could end up going a career it was all just very yeah just out of natural kind of um you know appreciating what somebody was doing doing with music so i mean hope hopefully 
you know, next year it really it really picks up. But I mean, they've got lots of um, you know plans for doing festivals, and I, I went over there for three weeks, and you know we did did so so many shows like water parks and the, like a car park like a like a car wash, but it was like mm. for supercars. But we uh, they you know brought in a sound system there, and then yeah. but then it was all ages as well. A lot of the events were, were like for younger kids as well. Mm. Um, at like one of the water parks that was like that was you know a kids a lot of kids were there as well and then even at the the car wash like at the end we, we, we're like taking photos with like the mums and dads and, <laughs> and the kids were coming up one by one but then his plan is like to get like a new generation of yeah. younger people like into it so I'm just like, oh this is this is great like you don't have to necessarily like if you're making hardcore music you don't have to be thinking of it as like UK hardcore music I mean it's still you know, historically, we'll, we'll always have come from England and well, UK, but yeah. it's not. Do you know what I mean? You, you don't have to be limited just to like yeah. driving places. It's great to see it more international. In episode nine, we welcomed an absolute legend of the rave scene, someone I have admired from a very young age and who inspired me to want to be a singer myself. We welcome 90s rave icon Mary Kiani, who began her career as part of the Scottish rave act TTF and then went on to have a very successful solo career. Her voice is easily one of the most recognised across dance music. She was so interesting and it was great to hear her chat and chat and chat about all her amazing stories. Of course, one of the things that Mary did in the early days was appear on top of the pops. To hear somebody talk about that was fascinating and her memories of that particular moment in her life. You know, Ultimate High being the first one we did top of the pops too. Yeah. Wow. Do you know, Debbie Harry's on the stage over there. And in fact, wait, 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 we're there, I think. And Hadaway was there. And we had to wait for um, Terence Trent Darby to get off the stage so we could get on. I was like, wow. Because Top of the Pops back in the day was the programme. You just, if you weren't on there, your aunties didn't think you made it. Do you know? You've no made it till you're on Top of the Pops. And and then, you know, and then just uh, the rest of that is history as well. But um but during all that time, I got the job with a band called um, um, Far Out. I'm getting old as well. Waterfront. Waterfront. And, and, and I went down to Wales to audition and I got the job. And four days later, I went to America and we supported uh, Donny Osmond on his American tour. Um, on and off this beautiful big Winnie Bagel type big bus where we slept in. And we, it was just, it was just, I was 24. And I'd never been, I'd never been outside Scotland, you know, that way. I just, yeah. uh, it was just amazing. It was just amazing. So I toured and all that stuff and, and then come back and TTF and, and then, and then from TTF, of course, John Reed, John Reed was constantly singing and constantly writing. And he was teaming up with a, a guy down in London called Ian Levine. Um, oh. And Ian Levine was responsible for a lot of the Take That stuff and Eternal and Dina Carroll and um, Nigel Lois. And so he was part of another group down in London. So John was making inroads there and being recognised, being recognised as a singer, as a songwriter, because he'd just been signed uh, with Roy Hay from Culture Club uh, with a band called This Way Up. Um, uh -huh. And so, but anyway, so after This Way Up, 
um, he was trying to obviously push his own writing and his own music and he got together with uh, a few guys in Glasgow and, and they, they formed the Nightcrawlers. So then I went and toured with the Nightcrawlers and we did all uh, just um, town and country club and this and that and just loads of stuff, just hundreds of stuff. Danusha was with me as well. So anyway, but that was my fiance at the time. In fact, um, um, we were going to get married at one point, but we never did. But yeah. Um, yeah, just great, just great music and just so great to be so involved. And through um, being with John and John having the, the connections, obviously we pushed the feeling on and that was doing really well. And, and, and he was connected to First Avenue Management. Yeah. And, um, and I, was on, I was on top of the pops. I was singing Real Love. And John says to the manager, Oliver Smallman, he says, can you not do something for her? Can you not do something for her? <laughs> as, as a Scottish <laughs> boy, a boy, a Glasgow boy, Faye Pollock would say, Oi, Ollie, <laughs> you start our Marriott. <laughs> and they were like, hmm. And then that was that. They signed me. They got me a deal with Mercury Records. Um, yeah. Mercury Records were just building, starting manifesto records with Judge Jules, and that was headed by Eddie Gordon, who was an extremely well-respected um, um, A&R man, uh, remixer, promoter, just everything. And he was, I was his first project. Um, so I have really special memories of all that time, being signed to Mercury and, being, and feeling like, um, I mean, I was priority for a long time. I did the breakfast show, the, this show, the, that show, the, every show that could be thought of I was I was on it you know it was just um and then they put me up in a flat in Chiswick and uh, I lived there on and off for four years but I tell you Ellie every time I had a weekend off I'd run up to Scotland and go to the food bar with my mates. One of the most popular songs in music and most recognisable is Push the Feeling On by Nightcrawlers as she had a relationship with John Reed who was part of the Nightcrawlers she has so many memories of that song and how it became the massive hit that it is. Moving on nicely to your next song, something you mentioned earlier on was about the Nightcrawlers and your second track that you've chosen is Push the Feeling On by the Nightcrawlers. Now, you were engaged to John Reed for nine years, is that right? That's right, that's right. And he was a, a massive part of your story. And it was a lovely journey, Ellie, it really was. Uh, it was an was yeah. incredible journey. And then he was doing his thing and I was doing my thing and, and, and my thing was taken off and his thing was taken off. And then I went to New York. The record company actually sent me to New York for three months to write with all these really prolific writers. Um, but then John came over as well. We wrote a couple of tunes as well um, with George as well from who did Show Me Love, you know, the Robin S. So again, wow, yeah. just, just working with good people and being inspired and then going for some soul food at two in the morning and just just great times, you know. And, and uh, I, John and I were in love for a long time and, and just... And just obviously helping each other out as well, just being involved with different things and, and crossing over. But that pushed the feeling on just being there for the, the kind of birth of that um, mm -hmm. and just being the journey of all that, you know, just totally amazing. And then went on tour with them, uh, with Danusha, and we both did killer vocals um, throughout the whole tour. And um, yeah. yeah, and he's actually went on to be one of the biggest songwriters in the world. Finally, in episode 10, we welcomed an Australian happy hardcore legend whose music takes inspiration from Japanese and anime culture. 
With chart success and being referenced by rap superstars, his music has been bringing smiles to faces worldwide for three decades now. In episode 10, we spoke to Cyril. say I was a little bit nervous when I looked at the choices of songs Cyril chose because the first one he chose was MTC which stands for Masturbate to Cartoons. I wasn't quite sure how to talk to him about this song but I needn't have worried it was so easy and so fascinating to hear how he came up against opposition for this song and how he just rode over it and released it anyway. This was one of the earlier tracks from my label that I started so it was actually more probably about halfway through my career, although it was early on once I blew up kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, this track, I remember having it clearly laid out in my head. It's one of those ones where I knew what it was going to sound like from the get-go melodically. But then when I made the track, I sort of needed something else to pull it all together, some, some you know, a little bit of X factor. And so I ended up just making up a funny little poem to go with it and I sang it myself and vocoded it and stuff and that's where it came from and yeah it ended up blowing right up way more than I thought which was funny because I showed a few people when I first made it and they kind of cringed at it and said oh I would think twice about releasing this (laughs) and sure enough it blew up. One of the things I really found interesting with Cyril is how his music has been really successful online. Most producers will tell you they make more money from gigging than they do from their actual sales online. Whereas for Cyril, it's a little bit different. But he credits his amazing fan base for that success. It was around that time that I was talking to Brisk because he had blown up during COVID because he was live streaming hardcore DJ stuff before COVID hit and of course so he just like surfed the wave of COVID to the top and he was the most popular uh, hardcore DJ on Twitch for a long time he probably still is Uh, and so yeah I we got together and said I'll do a live stream just to kind of stay active while I'm retired and uh, Mm -hmm. and of course yeah we decided to do a collab and the first one was Punch the Gas it was kind of um, we didn't really know what to do or how to work it because he hadn't done a collab in so long or any production at all and uh so we just kind of did a random thing but then with history maker it was more about how the scene has changed so much since uh everything moved online like there's a whole online rave scene now and yeah it it doesn't even really it kind of crosses over Mm -hmm. with the live scene but there's like a big part that doesn't and that's what I wanted to make the song about, basically, how it's like a new era in just music in general, really. So that was the whole mm-hmm. thing to it. I've never really thought of that before. I've never really thought that there is an online rave scene before. But when you say that, it makes sense because there are a lot of people who... I remember like around about 2010 talking to a lot of American people who had never really been to a rave before, but they loved the music. Yeah. They loved New Foundation. Do you remember New Foundation? Yeah, yeah, I loved him too, yeah. Yeah, and so like he had this massive following that was in America and they had never seen him live. <laughs> and it was lit and you are right, there is an online rave scene, 
that is very separate and different from from the actual rave scene where people go to raves and 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 enjoy that experience and yeah i've never really thought about that before that the the pandemic maybe has made that a bigger thing yeah i think it kind of um it was always going to happen but it kind of like sped run it up to the max uh oh well the funny thing is yeah the uh the online subculture for the raving like you said there's a lot of people who don't go to raves or even want to go to raves but still are right into the music and just part of the online community and yeah uh, i've actually got a a vr rave like a rave in vr that i'm djing at live but it's in vr so it's like an actual online rave. so it's like a whole thing that's like coming along i think well, you definitely. I think as well because there's a lot of people who love hardcore music who are very, very fascinated and obsessed with hardcore music who who maybe on the autistic spectrum and maybe the actual going to a rave would be too much. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. There's a whole generation of people who who love the music, but like the actual to go to a rave would just be on a sensory level just too much. That's it. And I think that. That's a good thing that you're bringing that forward and really repping that because I think that gives them an opportunity to, to do what they love and to be part of a, a a scene and a part of a community that they love without actually having to go and, you know, get wasted. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and there's a lot of people I talk to as well that really want to go to a rave, but they're in like countries where it just doesn't exist or there's no scene at all. You like, you know, Uzbekistan mm-hmm. or South Africa, I've spoken to a lot of people. Wow. It's crazy. Like all around yeah. the world is really exotic locations, but they've got no scene to even try to go to. So just yeah, going online, putting on some VR goggles is the way yeah. to go. <laughs> so if you've listened in to episodes one to ten, then thank you because I really appreciate every listen that you give this show. And I hope you continue to listen to all the episodes I've got coming up. Tell your friends all about the show and subscribe and like. Because every single listen matters and I really appreciate you all. Greatest Beats has only just begun and I hope to continue to make it grow and grow. So stay tuned for future episodes because we have a hard style legend talking to us soon. You can find us on Instagram at Greatest Beats and also on TikTok and Facebook. So hit us up on all the social media channels. I also want to give a shout out to the Green Room Glasgow who have been absolutely amazing with their help in producing this podcast. You can find them on all the good social media channels too. Keep listening and I hope you come back soon.